Good morning. You are listening to KPOO San Francisco 89.5 and on the World Wide Web at KPOO.com. This is Prison Focus Radio. Slavery is back. In fact, it was never abolished. The 13th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution abolished slavery, except in prison. At the current rate of incarceration, by the year 2010, the majority of all African-American men between 18 and 40 will be in prison. The state as their captor. It's going to take people who are willing to fight, not people who want to negotiate with the enemy. Deal with 
All right, beautiful people, I want to thank you for joining me here on Prison Focus Radio. I am your host, Nube Brown, at KPOO San Francisco 89.5, and you may be live streaming at kpoo.com. So we are just after Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday, and one of the things that he mentioned in his uh, speech at Riverside uh, Church were uh, when he was give, delivering his Vietnam speech was the evil triplets of racism, materialism, and imperialism. But these days, I would say, materialism is capitalism, and the next uh, topic or concern um, these many decades later almost 60 years later, uh, is capitalism in the form of legal slavery that's taking place within our prisons. So that wasn't even a topic of discussion when uh, Martin Luther King uh, Jr. was making his incredibly powerful speeches and even when he got to where he is. So here is where you are going... Yes, going to hear uh, the voices of people that, like Setawa Nantambu Jama'a, who is now calling himself um, an educated slave, um, and hearing from other uh, new African revolutionaries on the inside and just other very, um, uh, again, self-educated um, and wise people from the inside talking about understanding their conditions uh, very well about being legally enslaved in 2023 and hearing from them um, about what is taking place and what we can do on the outside and keeping that connection, uh, breaking down, dissolving those walls between us of the uh, from those that are experiencing legalized slavery and those of us on the outside, on the other side of the wall, uh, who are experiencing um, what we are calling the free world uh, without a clear understanding that we are also being um, enslaved uh, in our minds from the conditioning of white supremacy, capitalism, and imperialism, and colonialism. So, we are going to get started with the show. Uh, we are going to be hearing uh, more from Kwame Shakur, who is a, a young new African revolutionary uh, inside of um, an Indiana prison. And we are going to hear from Setawa Nantambu Jama'a and a couple of other voices as well. We've got a lot of part twos, I think, that we're going to be hearing um, over these next weeks. All right. Again, thank you for being here. You are listening to Prison Focus Radio, and we're about to get started. All right, and before we get started, I actually want to give a couple of uh, statistics um, so that we can kind of get a little bit of a platform, a little bit of context around what we mean when we talk about legalized slavery. So in 1961, okay, that's six years before Martin Luther King Jr. gave his uh, the famous... Um, speech around um, anti-war, his anti-war speech regarding Vietnam. So in 1961, there were 220,000 people, modern-day enslaved, but they were just called incarcerated. 
now, that's an all of America with three Ks, Inc. Now, there are two million people who are modern day enslaved, legally enslaved, in our prisons throughout America with three Ks, Inc. It is a multi-billion dollar business. In California alone, in 1967, there were 43,000 people incarcerated. Now, in California alone, and this is from a recent decrease, there are 91,000 people modern-day enslaved, and many more of them are now understanding that this is legal slavery taking place within the prisons. Um, more people are understanding that there is an exception clause to the 13th Amendment. Again, California in 1967, when Martin Luther King Jr. gave that speech at the Riverside Church, there were 43,000 people incarcerated. Quote, Now, there are 91,000 in California alone. And that, again is a decrease from we had something that is, but it is also at 110 capacity, 110% capacity, excuse me, with even being at 91,000. So uh, when we're talking about prison closures, when we are talking about, uh, you know, these small communities that are being built up around prisons, we know, and then we, as we are talking about, cl again, closing prisons, um, and what that means and where people are going to go and with, quote, crime decreasing and we are still uh, paying taxpayer monies to, to build up these prisons, we have to understand it is a business. It is an economic boom to have, to keep prisons open and filled and why we need to close them. So I am going to give some additional information um, I'm going to be reading from The Fire Inside. This is the publication that comes out of the California Coalition for Women Prisoners. This is their newsletter. This is out of the issue number 68 from November of 2022. And this is uh, the editorial. So across the country, the subject of women's prisons has become a flashpoint for starkly different approaches to changing the current failed system. In New York City, prominent feminists like Gloria Steinem are promoting the Women's Community Justice Association model, which advocates for replacing the dilapidated Rose M. Singer jail on Rikers Island with a, quote, feminist jail, unquote, built in Harlem. They claim that a new women's jail would create a safer, quote, safer, gender-responsive place for women, trans, and non-binary people. CCWP, again, the California Coalition for Women's Prisoners, and prison abolitionists everywhere do not believe that any carceral facility can provide safety, justice, dignity, or a pathway towards life changes for incarcerated people of all genders. 
we reject so-called, quote, feminist gender-based prisons, unquote, as a fantasy of feminists who turn to the state to solve problems of gender, racial, and economic violence. In fact, the state and its prison industrial complex cause and exacerbate all of these forms of violence. This is why CCWP, in collaboration with CURB, Californians United for a Responsible Budget, is embarking on a campaign to close all women's prisons in California. We know that this is a visionary goal, but we also believe that it is possible. In 2010, there were 12,668 people in California women's prisons. Today, there are approximately 3,699 people, a reduction of approximately 70.8%. CCWP's advocacy, along with dozens of other organizations, helped catalyze this dramatic reduction in the women's prison population. If we were able to win the the decarceration of 8,969 people, we should be able to find alternatives to incarceration for 3,700 more. If we identify the root social causes for why people end up in women's prisons, instead of blaming each individual for their shortcomings, we can formulate roadmaps that lead to the closure of women's prisons in California. Our first step is to produce a report in collaboration with CURB and Human Impact Partners, HIP, which demonstrates why such a closure is both necessary and within reach. CCWP leader Jane Dorotic who was wrongfully incarcerated for over 20 years, is working on this report. She explained that the current prison industrial complex, quote, is just a big net that catches whoever it can. The net is thrown out and pulls people in and keeps them behind bars as long as it possibly can. We were able to release a large number of women without any adverse effects. So let's take it all the way, unquote. We're not alone in raising such demands. In contrast to the proponents of the, quote, feminist jail in Harlem, hashtag no new jails NYC states, quote, we vehemently oppose efforts to brand the expansion of the PIC as feminist or humanitarian, unquote. um, Andrea James, founder of the National Council for Incarcerated and Formerly Incarcerated Women and Girls, recently published an op-ed opposing the construction of a new women's prison in Massachusetts. She wrote, quote, we should empty MCI Framingham, the women's prison in Massachusetts, close it forever and never build another prison in Massachusetts, unquote. We join with feminists and abolitionists all over the country as we launch our campaign to close California women's prisons and develop community-based alternatives rooted in transformative justice and collective care. All right, so I did mention Curb in there, and they just had a a big press release kind of webinar um, uh, issue or um, event because they were talking about uh, Governor Newsom's budget that did not include the uh, demand that we have as the people to close uh, 10 more, 10 of the worst uh, prisons in California. Um, instead, it sounds like he's wanting to add to the um, the uh, CDCR budget, CDC small r budget. So CURB, Californians United for a Responsible Budget, has what's called the People's Plan for Prison Closure. And so I'm going to read a little bit of this. Um, In April 2021, the CURB Coalition released the People's Plan for Prison Closure, a visionary report that outlines the failures of California's bloated carceral system and offers bold, community-centered solutions for our jail problem. 
Within the report, you'll find information, information such as more about the Curb Coalition and our mission, a bold plan to close the 10 worst California prisons by 2025, a brief history of how California became the largest jailer and jail system in the world, the environmental, economical, and human cost of mass incarceration, which is really legal slavery, and of jail facilities themselves, the fiscal response irresponsibility of maintaining the status quo, a plan for reinvesting carceral dollars to bolster our economy and create jobs for community members and former California Department of Corrections employees, um, a wide range of research and supporting materials that will provide useful context for anyone who wants to better understand why the abolition of California prisons and jails is essential to our community well-being as California moves into a healthier, happier future with equitable outcomes and opportunity for all to thrive. Um, I don't know if you remember me mentioning sometime, well, but definitely last year, uh, but some months ago about the Arizona governor talking about we very blatantly, there's no way that we can end uh, prison slavery because that will um, uh, greatly and negatively affect our constituents um, uh, basically in the free world, right? No, we can't. We need to have this slave labor in the form of prisons uh, so that the community outside, right, the town around the prison can survive. And we also know that Governor Newsom here uh, blocked the ability for Californians to even vote on whether they wanted to, slavery to continue in California, saying it was too expensive to end slavery. All right, and then I would like to read a short piece also from The Fire Inside by Professor Jennifer James uh, about Norwegian prison system. Uh, this is Norway, kinder but still prisons. The Norwegian prison system is seen as a model form of incarceration. Many in the U.S., who disagree with mass incarceration or who have heard about the deplorable and inhumane conditions inside U.S. prisons and jails, think we should strive to be more like Norway. I had the chance to visit several prisons in Sweden and Norway in fall of 2022 and learn from the people who live and work in their women's prisons. Norway incarcerates dramatically fewer people and for far less time. The Norwegian model is based on a few key key principles, dynamic security, correctional officers who receive several years of training, including in topics like psychology and ethics, get to know the residents of prisons. They are tasked with checking in with incarcerated people regularly, supporting them around education and reentry planning and more, all with the idea that relationships are a key aspect of security. Second is the principle of normalization. Norwegian prisons want to mirror the community as much as possible. Many prisons have grocery stores where residents can purchase their own food, then cook in a real kitchen. Rooms look much more like dorm rooms than jail cells, and people have bathrooms with doors. In many prisons, people wear regular clothes. Finally, they have the principle of progression. While many start at a maximum level of security, there is a goal and a responsibility to move everyone down the security level, increasing responsibility and freedom and decreasing restriction and security. Prior to release, many people are working jobs in the community and spending time with family outside of prison. Overall, there was a much higher level of respect and humanity for incarcerated people. Most officers don't carry weapons. They have coffee and meals with the residents. 
They may shop at the same stores in the prison or get their hair done by the residents working in the prison salon. I noticed officers speaking to and about residents with respect and often affection. The difference was stark, and yet these are still prisons. Residents spoke of trying to sleep while hearing yelling and distress all night. Others noted that prison was a deeply traumatizing environment. Freedom is still restricted and autonomy is still lost. It was clear that Norway, like the U.S., over-incarcerates people of color and immigrants. While their approach to family reunification and maintaining relationships with children are different, incarcerating parents is still catastrophic. In fact, people in Norwegian prisons have less time each day to talk to their family. Norwegian prisons are not a substitute for abolition. The U.S. system targets, harasses, and incarcerates mind-boggling numbers of people. It terrorizes community and perpetuates violence. Prisons are a critical aspect and an extension of this system. We must fundamentally abolish this system and invest in community rather than policing. And yet, if one believes that there are people who need support, structure, and intervention in order to be able to live in community, the Norwegian model may be a way we can imagine this. What is clear is that the culture of U.S. prisons creates violence and disrupts safety and community. It cannot continue. And in many ways, it remains hard to imagine a world in which reform, even based on the Norwegian model, is possible. Yes, well, of course, their history with the prisons is entirely different because ours is an iteration of slavery. So we're already starting, um, you know, at a, at a major, major disadvantage. Um, but, um, yeah, I do kind of like that last uh, paragraph there. Um, uh, the, the part that I found most interesting is the freedom freedom is still restricted and autonomy is still lost. But this idea that it's freedom that is really the punishment, the, sorry, the loss of freedom is the punishment. But that's the thing. The loss of freedom isn't a punishment. It is meant to be a state of existence for black people, and now black, brown, and indigenous people. So by losing your freedom, the state that you're supposed to be in anyway, the state or just non-existence, or the slave or non-existence, in order to hold that up, you have to make, you lose all of your rights, you use all of your, yeah, all of your, all of your human rights, all of your, um, civil rights, you are a slave. And in order to maintain that, that must be done by violence and lawlessness. And that is why all of these state guards and staff get to uh, inflict another kind of punishment, more punishment beyond loss of freedom in order to maintain uh, this continued economic boon of uh, a boom of of um, enslaved captive people. Okay, we are going to take a quick musical break with "The Sweetest Gift" by Sade. Quietly while you were asleep, the moon and I were talking.
Dance across the moon Your light fills the darkest room And I can see the miracle That keeps us from falling She promised all the sweetest gifts That only the heavens could hear from Kwame Shakur now but unfortunately you can't hear my questions so I asked him to one I was asking him about the conditions that they're keeping him under in um, in solitary confinement um, illegally uh, because uh, they are retaliating against him further by not supplying any blankets um, and uh, of course they, they won't turn on the heat and uh, so he's responding to that. And then also I'm asking him about or making a comment that the way that they're treating him and what they're trying to do is um, by uh, keeping the heat, uh, making sure that they don't have heat or not supplying blankets um, uh, makes it, of course, uh, they're the kind of dupe group punishment, right? Um, so they're retaliating against Kwame Shakur. So they are then uh, denying the other prisoners around him, uh, you know, blankets and um, a proper treatment. So, you know, twofold to be able to uh, turn the other prisoners against him to keep him from, from uh, you know, speaking out and exposing what's taking place or challenging the system. And also, uh, and then he's responding to uh, the other reason that uh, they are doing this, and it's to get him to react. Yeah, they just keep playing like we've been trying to get extra blankets or get the heat turned on because it's not even the whole shoe. It's just the the six cells down here where I'm at in my pod and then across the hall too. But um, you know, mm -hmm. yeah, and they do this kind of thing too to to like have people um, suffer right alongside you because like and so that they can blame you and try to get you to get the other prisoners to to go against you and and make you stop what you're doing. We know that they do that. Yeah, at the same time, they're trying to get me to react. That way they can write me up and justify not letting me out or help. Because right now they're not justified. So they, this is a pattern of what happened the first three years I was in the hole. And then this seven years on this segment, every time it's time for me to get off, they agitate and antagonize me and entice me to do something. You know what I'm saying? Absolutely. But like I was telling Mary last week, um, like I got them down to a science the same way they think they've done us with their counterintelligence. Like they can't get me to react because I was like mastered 
my emotions and my behavior, like I'm the only one in control of me. So, like when I know what they're trying to do, I'm not gonna let them get the upper hand when I came this far to get the population. All right. So here I asked Kwame about. Uh, this incredible self-discipline to uh, just assert his humanity, know where he stands as a new African revolutionary and not and not to react. He, like he said, he, um, he, he knows who, who his oppressor is and how they operate. And so they don't have anything um, on him. They cannot... Um, they cannot make him react. So I think this is a really important point when we're talking about people inside, especially those that are um, persecuted over and over and over and over retaliated against um, on on the daily um, because they continue to assert their um, right to be uh, a full uh, self-determined human being and uh, work to uh, uh, politicize themselves and each other, educate themselves and each other. And so I wanted him to comment on that. And this is what he had to say. Yeah, like, to you, I mean, I see what you're saying. Like, to use these words, politicizing, revolutionizing, um, you know, say again, developing a revolutionary mentality and educating ourselves at the end of the day, we're only doing what we're supposed to do. We're getting in touch with our spirituality, with our culture, with our knowledge and science itself, the same way that a baby is born and it's taught the functions of society and who they are and learns a language and learns their history in school. That's all we're doing. That's all we're doing. It's tapping in with our humanity, our place in this world, and who we are as new African brothers and sisters, you know what I'm saying? But when you're doing that as a colonizing and neo-colonizing group of people that's subject to assimilation and integration and genocide and all the form of, of the overall colonization of our people, then that goes against the very fabric and structure of the oppressive system, that Willie Lynch syndrome that me and you have talked about for years, the Willie Lynch indoctrination. Right. You know what I'm saying? They, he, he says, you know what I'm saying, we can't just keep these people in physical captivity. We have to empty their brains, empty the contents of their brains. It's like a, a computer hard drive and they're wiping it out and, and filling it back up with their own information, with their own data. And so right now, when we're in that decolonization stage, that's us wiping out that colonial data and rebooting our, our, our system because it's all there. It's already there. That's why it was so easy for you and me to become fully conscious and dive straight in head first because as soon as we got a little bit of that knowledge ourselves, it just came back like a flood, like it should with any colonized, oppressed individual. But, um, yeah, like they, they said with the Black Panther Party, it's the biggest internal threat, the biggest domestic threat. Because losing 250, $350 billion a year if the African colony on this continent was to fully decolonize and self-govern itself, I would assume that is a threat to, to them. 
All right, here I want Kwame to unpack a bit more dialectical materialism, the contradictions, what all that means. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's, that's a part of dialectical materialism. So you understand what that is, is, you know what I'm saying, understanding the, the science of cause and effect, that you have two opposing or contradictions that, that exist in, in a society. Or the, uh, I should say you have two two things that are contradicting to each other that can't coexist in society, and for us, that's the oppressed and the oppressor, or capitalism and socialism, they're going to collide. And so with that understanding of that dialect means that the most oppressed is always going to be the ones who are at the, the forefront of the struggle of leading in theory and in action and practice. And so who else other than captives inside America's prisons are the most oppressed? So that's why you've seen going all the way back to the late 60s and the early 70s that, you know what I'm saying, it's always been a struggle, not the prison movement, but uh, the new African and black liberation struggle has always been led for the most part from the inside out. The, the theory and the organizing and the strategy has come from those thinkers inside like George Jackson, like Jalil and all those other um, political prisoners and prisoners of war who was putting together the new African POW journals and the crossroads and all those things that gave us our blueprint and our, our study to, to move forward for these past couple generations. And, and you know what I'm saying? It's, it's no different now. Yeah, so I want to go back to the question that you asked me before the phone cut off, but I knew it had one minute, so I started rushing, but in terms of somebody that's hearing this for the first time that's saying uh, do the crime, do the time, you know what I'm saying? Uh-huh. Like, the average person that's out there in the world that's engaged in this capitalist cycle of neo-slavery, economic exploitation, is Comrade George said it the best in you know, his book, Solo Dad, Brother. Like, the neo-slave, you're sleeping for, let's say, six to eight hours a day. You get up, you shower, you eat, you take your kids to school, you travel to work. You work for eight, ten, or twelve hours a day. You commute back home. You probably got some sports, uh, some type of activities with your kids. You cook dinner, you take a shower, and you go to sleep. So your whole life, your whole thinking, everything is centered around your boss and that plantation. You have no time to think about what's going on behind the concrete walls and the iron curtains of America's modern-day slave plantations. Why would you? It's not in your social reality. If you don't have somebody in your immediate family that's locked up, that you're supporting, and that you're there for, and you're knowing what's going on on a daily basis in here, why would it ever enter your consciousness to think about the treatment of captives inside these, these, these slave plantations, right? Yeah. And so that's why it's so important, the work that we're doing with Spirit of Mandela and Prison Life Matter is bringing this 
and and definitely can't leave out, you know what I'm saying, the San Francisco baby, because there's, there's, again, there's nothing like it in terms of who it gives a voice to and what it exposes and puts the spotlight on. So we got to just continue putting this information out there into the psyche, into the consciousness of the masses and, and tapping into their humanity. A lot of these people, you know what I'm saying, they're, they're outraged at what they see in other countries and other wars that's going on in Ukraine. But there is a war going on right here in your streets, in your cities, in America's prisons, in these courtrooms. You know what I'm saying? There's an injustice going on. You know what I'm saying? So in terms of them saying do the crime, do the time, or what are they complaining about? Our tax dollars is feeding them and giving them three hots in a cot or whatever lame-ass they'll say along those lines. But we're going through the same educational, economical, and political the medical issues that the lower working class people are suffering from on the outside. You have one minute remaining. All right, so Kwame and I were cut off, or our conversation, of course, was cut short. But we will definitely have him back. Um, I have one more installment um, that we will play uh, next week when he's going to be talking about uh, Prison Lives Matter, the organization that he co-founded with Shaka Shakur um, and the work that they are continuing to do. So right now we're going to go ahead and, oh, if you are just joining us, you are tuned in to Prison Focus Radio. I'm your host, Nube Brown, and you are here at KPOO San Francisco 89.5 if you are in the San Francisco area. If not, perhaps you are live streaming from kpoo.com. Also, um, you were uh, listening to part two of my conversation with Kwame Shakur of Prison Lives Matter, and we are just going to continue to hear the voices of these new African revolutionaries and the work that they're doing inside um, our uh, fight uh, to get them as political prisoners, politicized prisoners, they're all political prisoners, um, getting them home, but in the meantime, exposing and highlighting the incredible work that they are doing um, <clears throat> to educate themselves, organize themselves, activate themselves, as well as us out here. So, um, yeah, and just uh, letting us know letting us know of ways that we can continue to act in, in solidarity and really uh, build that power of the, the people. Uh, to help get them out, to get us all free. We need to get them free physically, but they are more free um, in uh, mind and spirit than many of us, most of us out here. So we really could uh, do ourselves a benefit by by listening up. All right. Speaking of uh, listening up, I just got some new commentary from Kwame on his Instagram page regarding uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Uh, uh, commemoration and remembrance and i just want to read this to you this brother is just so um you know he's just in, so intelligent and really you know these are the voices that we are needing at this time so this is what he has to say um one of the most dangerous forms of capitalism is neo-colonialism all throughout history the united states has propped up these neo-colonial integrationist assimilates into the leadership of the national black bourgeoisie. Their aim and objective is to appoint our leaders, 
and it's in quotes, those who they view as passive and obedient that will mislead and misdirect the masses into reactionary reformism versus revolutionary nationalism and self-determination. During the civil rights movement, the U.S. government didn't like Martin Luther King Jr. any more than they liked bro Malcolm X. However, they saw MLK and the civil rights movement as the safer alternative neo-colonial distraction over the black power movement and the emerging Black Panther Party. To this day, they continue to only talk about or acknowledge our new African leaders who they deem as safe and appropriate. What they want us to believe about MLK is that he remained a passive, obedient integrationist. What they don't want us to know about him is that towards the end, he began speaking out against capitalism, imperialism, and the genocidal wars taking place. They don't want us to know that he began to see things through the lens of Malcolm X. They don't want us to know that he adopted a socialist outlook and mind frame. They don't want us to know he was organizing a national poor people's campaign to combat genocide and our national oppression. This is why they had to kill him, too. And all of that is accompanied by images of uh, Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr. shaking hands and talking and laughing and and together. All right, we are going to take a quick musical break and come back with an article uh, that uh, just was put out by Elizabeth Weil Greenberg, Louisiana imprisons children in a former death row unit. The kids say it haunts them. Dear white people, I am not your Negro. Yeah, black people, y'all just got your hero. All these rap demons I'm about to depot Me and Asada, my ATL and alter ego The queen of Sheba and Musa Kida Producer heater, salute your teacher My newest seat is a future leader A testament of my evolution to excellence To be or not to be human, that's what the question is I'm still the answer regardless Rappers is moving targets Acknowledge me as the smartest passenger moving forward My little sister bars blast like Kalishnikov Just because heavy bass dance like Barishnikov The sound pierced like bullets and swords From a nation under attack like Bulletin boards and I'm repping the foundation to the fullest of course The day another life was lost and it could have been yours Whether in Colorado or Collie Park You but a mile apart from the sharpness of my remarks The black oligarch making weaponry out of art My supplier so messiah told me we gotta talk I walk through the dark Now do I roll deep or do I hold heat Now am I laid back or a control freak Rocking the crown gilded in gold leaf I'm from a place where the people dream but don't sleep Look, I don't want to keep this dialogue alive. 
they still don't know I'm out for blood. I'm not surprised. I keep my fangs well hidden behind a model smiles. And this tyrannical grammar stay hypothesized by design. I'm emphatically beast over every domain. I severely pray in states of paralysis with my rabid eyes. And me and thought together, portrait of your worst fears. The darkness come to light when two Leviathans are fraternizing. My stock's splinting from God's in its small sentences. Till every mob within yards beyond penance and squad. Minute for mean is demeanor. And Lauren lyrics, we broke God in the tables and squat like Salon's titular album. Homie, I'm scripture embodied. Holy 16, sort of fiend, the redeemer. Picture of pious quoting my verses like I'm second coming. That's just one way that I've been hurt described. I'm old bottle across the Tupac and the cost all eyes on me when I occupy space immersed in white. Cause I'm lit like a seven day. My third eye lit, stay wide open like it's broken. It's unsettling. It's a high risk going up against my pedigree. It's black thoughts and rock the eye. Bitch in his pedaway. Split a dark matter, enigmatic figure Dwelling shadow, then emerge on my genetics Triggered, the sleeping giant, the ether Supplier, keep a wire, so when every verse Hit this circuit, you make repeat required We fired a live round out of the cartridge The foul words written on parchment High and exalted, police and fire Department, main culprit, a glimmer In the eye of the target, the mind of a Marksman, the word source was preferred Source of that black magic, the same Orifice that fame voiceless as fat acid The dream eater, the green reaper, sixteen Healer, the sonic boom and the Sight for the grim reaper, the gatekeeper, the late creeper, the street sweeper that think deeper, the complete speaker, the spin galley. Went from reefer in the alley to freaking with a Somali on the beaches of Malawi. Now we the luminary, the heavy pituitary. Knew it very early on. I be the legendary, hottest inside of my vocabulary, contemporary. Personally autographing every obituary. All right, that was Saw Rock featuring Black Thought with Black Renaissance. Okay, this is the article out of The Appeal by Elizabeth Weil Greenberg from January 13th, 2023, Louisiana imprisons children in a former death row unit. The kids say it haunts them. Last year, the Louisiana Office of Juvenile Justice began transferring children to Angola, the state's most notorious prison. Since then, kids say they've suffered through horrific conditions and routine mistreatment. Children held at the Louisiana State Penitentiary, better known as the notorious Angola prison, have been locked down in their cells for days at a time, only allowed to leave to shower, according to a 15-year-old who was detained at the unit. During his time there, he says guards twisted his arm and sprayed him and others with mace. 
The teen identified as the alias Daniel D. in court records made these claims as part of an ongoing federal court case filed by the ACLU, law firms, and a legal clinic at the Loyola University New Orleans College of Law. They're demanding Louisiana close the prison's recently created unit for children detained by the state's Office of Juvenile Justice, the OJJ, which is tasked with rehabilitating children in their care. Louisiana only began transferring children to the unit last year after kids escaped from another of the state's facilities. Wonder why. The OJJ says they are currently there are currently five kids confined at the Angola State. According to court documents reviewed by the appeal, Daniel and other t- and another teenager identified as the alias Edward E. reported that they have been subjected to cruel treatment inside the facility. In one example, Daniel said after a child hit a guard, Department of Corrections and OJJ officers came into the classroom and started grabbing all the kids. DOC guards grabbed and twisted my arm, he said. After this incident, Daniel says he and other seven, the other seven children present were locked in their cells alone for at least three days. They were only permitted to leave to shower. At other times, Daniel said he and other kids have been confined to their cells for entire weekends, except for when they needed a shower. Every day, they're locked in their cells starting at 5 p.m. until 6.45 a.m. in the morning, Daniel said in his statement. An OJJ spokesperson said in an email that providing the appeal with a schedule for the young people held at Angola would pose a security risk. Quote, in general, the youth go to school, participate in counseling, have recreational activity time, utilize the dining hall for all their meals, and participate with both in-person and virtual visits with family, unquote, they wrote. Daniel told the court that when it's cold outside, there is no hot water and the children can't shower. The power often goes out when it rains and the kids are not allowed to attend school, he says. On those days, they're locked in their cells except for lunch and dinner. Earlier this month, the ACLU and other legal representatives submitted Daniel and Edward statements to the U.S. District Court for the Middle District of Louisiana as part of their ongoing litigation to shut down the youth unit at Angola. When asked by the appeal to respond to the allegations made in court statements, an OJJ spokesperson wrote the agency cannot comment on pending litigation and reiterated their commitment to the children held in these facilities. Uh, quote, that we take the responsibility to ensure safety at our facilities very seriously, and we strive to create an environment for successful education and rehabilitation of the youth in our care, they said via email. 17-year-old Edward was transferred from a juvenile facility to Angola in October. He has been diagnosed with ADHD, PTSD, and bipolar disorder. Since he arrived at Angola, he says his nightmares related to his trauma history have gotten worse. The food is... Quote, worse than any other facility I have been to, unquote, and often has hair in it, Edwards said. On one occasion, a kid threw his plate on the ground after finding a hair in his food. The next day, Edwards said the staff, quote, blended all of the child's food together and fried it into a food loaf, unquote. Um, it never even crossed my mind that these kids would be subjected to this really inhumane punishment with food that I think is meant to strip people of their dignity. Edwards' attorney, Hector Linares, a professor at Loyola University, New Orleans College of Law, told the appeal, that one got to me, like got under my skin. Edward also stated that being housed in the prison's old death row unit haunted him. It is very depressing here knowing this is a f- the former death row, Edward told the court during his stay in the unit, when the lights go out at night, I think I see shadows going past. Last year, 
A few days after several kids escaped from one of the state's secure facilities for youth, Louisiana Governor John Bell Edwards, a Democrat, announced to plan a plan to move about two dozen kids to a building on the grounds of the Louisiana State Penitentiary. The transitional treatment unit at, uh, at Angola would serve young people who need a more restrictive housing environment, according to OJJ, while the agency worked to develop a permanent location. Local groups, along with ACLU, attempted to stop the transfers, but in September, Chief District Judge Shelley D. Dick ruled that the moves would commence could commence, even though she acknowledged the children would likely suffer, quote, psychological trauma and harm, unquote. In her ruling, Dick wrote that the OJJ is, quote, charged with a rehabilitative, not punitive mission, unquote, and that the, an- that the unit at Angola, quote, will provide all necessary programs and services to youth, unquote. The unit is designed to be, quote, therapeutic and rehabilitative while maintaining discipline, safety, and security, unquote. Not sure how they get that, considering it is an old death row unit. The judge dismissed concerns raised by the ACLU and their partners that kids at Angola would be subjected to, quote, excessive or abusive solitary confinement, unquote. Then OJJ, Assistant Secretary Otha Curtis Nelson Jr. told the court the judge wrote that, quote, legally, no child can be confined in their room for more than eight hours and then only after an assessment. The child must be checked on an hourly basis. Once the child has calmed down, they are released back into general population, unquote. During his testimony, Nelson also said, quote, we don't punish kids placed in our custody, unquote. Nelson is now deputy secretary of OJJ. Incarcerating children at Angola is antithetical to the OJJ's duty to help children in their facilities, said Kristen Rome, co-executive director of the Louisiana Center for Children's Rights. Quote, there is no question that these children have been placed in prison, unquote, uh, she told the appeal. Uh, and she goes on to say the impact of a black child having to go to that facility and be incarcerated in a former death row camp. There's no way for us to know what the impact will be. But we do know but what we do know is that it will not make them better, unquote. Edward and Daniel described an environment rife with isolation, violence, and inadequate mental health and educational services. Both also reported that they were subjected to collective punishment. In one unit, Edward said, if a child acted up, everyone would lose recreation time and be locked in their cells instead. After a kid hit a guard in the dining hall, Daniel said, the staff started macing all of us. Daniel added that the guards exacted a particularly brutal punishment for the boy who had struck the guard. They maced and punched him while he was on the ground. Yeah, and I wonder why he resorted to punching. It didn't just come out of nowhere. Nancy Rosenblum, a senior litigation advisor at the ACLU National Prison Project, told the appeal that the state has not given kids the rehabilitative programs that it promised in court. Of course. Quote, it's outrageous that the state would put several witnesses on the stand in federal court to say, just trust us, judge, we're going to provide all of the legally required services and then simply not do it, unquote, she said. The state also said fabric would surround the perimeter of this facility to comply with federal law, which requires that incarcerated children and adults cannot see or hear each other. Private attorney Christopher Morell told the appeal that when he visited Daniel, the cloth was already shredding and ripped apart. Morell said the fabric is attached to a giant fence with spools of razor, razor wire on top. You know um, you are walking into a serious felony institution when you walk into the area where the kids are being held, he said. Since Edward and Daniel 
provided their statements. Both have been transferred out of Angola, according to the ACLU. However, they can be sent back to Angola for any number of reasons, including committing certain acts of violence against a staff member or possessing marijuana, according to OJJ policy. The agency can also send kids with serious mental illness or significant developmental disabilities to Angola. The possibility of returning to Angola hasn't left Daniel's mind. Even if they transfer me to another facility, I'm worried they will ship me back here to Angola, he said. Black children, as Daniel and Edward identified, as Daniel and Edward identify, are disproportionately represented throughout the juvenile justice system, particularly in Louisiana. As of August of last year, over 80% of the more than 320 kids sent to juvenile detention facilities in Louisiana were black, even though they make up less than 40% of the general population. According to OJJ data, more than 100 young people were detained for nonviolent misdemeanor or technical reasons, the OJJ says, which means we know for sure it makes them worse. The appeal filed public records requests for information on the ages and races of those held at Angola, but the agency has said they have no records responsive to the request. When asked for the racial makeup of the five youth currently held at Angola, an OJJ spokesperson told the appeal via email that due to the confidential nature of juvenile records, OJJ cannot release identifying information pertaining to youth to the media, unquote. Gina Womack, executive director of Families and Friends of Louisiana's Incarcerated Children, said in a written statement that the significance of housing children of color at Angola should not be lost on the public. Quote, the fact that black children are being locked in cages on a former plantation for enslaved Africans is already an immeasurable offense, but to also learn that they are being held in solitary confinement without necessary services, education, or even recreation is unconscionable, she said. In November, activists with the F. L.I.C. The, um, uh, attempted to confront the governor at a public meeting and present him with their petition demanding that he shut down Angola's youth unit. They were denied entry to the meeting until after he left, according to the group. We have said time and time again that nothing good can come from housing youth in Angola, but the governor and the Office of Juvenile Justice have been determined to ignore what's right, Womack said. Under their leadership, Louisiana has become even more of a shame to our nation, and this abuse has only added to our reputation as a failure in education and child well-being. And you can read this article yourself by going to theappeal.org. The name of the article is Louisiana Imprisons Children in a Former Death Row Unit. The Kids Say It Haunts Them. This is by Elizabeth Weil-Greenberg. These are our children. And if there is anybody out there that is making any justifications for uh, children being imprisoned and sent to solitary confinement and being uh, punished the way that they are punished for uh, responding to the trauma that they are experiencing has reached spiritual death, as Martin Luther King has suggested in his Beyond Vietnam service sermon that he delivered um, at Riverside Church in 1967, where he said a nation that continues year after year to spend more money on military defense than on programs of social uplift is approaching spiritual death. I believe that we have possibly arrived um, when we can somehow turn away from hearing, seeing, and understanding that our children are being abused, further traumatized, and experiencing what could be irreparable 
harm and damage by adults. And again, we are, we are turning a blind eye and a deaf ear and a silent voice to these matters. So this is why we come here every week. I want to thank you, KPOO, uh, San Francisco 89.5, for giving us this time to uh, constantly um, expose the public um, and uh, to what is truly taking place within our, within our prisons. This is our children, people. All right. Take a breath with that. Um, gather here in solidarity. And uh, we will see you next week. Get ready for Work Week with Steve Seltzer. Peace out.